Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. We are in the middle of a, a uh, series, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to burn through some material. I'm going to read this morning. Uh, this is a very important subject that we've been dealing with. We're on our second installment in a series. We're calling it Strange New World. I'm shamelessly lifting that from the book of the month, Strange New World, by Carl Truman, a theologian, Bible teacher, and a brilliant cultural, uh, he's assessing culture. And, and he asked this question in the book, and it really sets us up for what we're looking at. He asked the question, what has happened in, in our culture, what has happened in the West, that a mere generation ago, if someone went into a doctor's office and said, I'm a, a woman stuck in a man's body, the doctor would have said, yes, this is a problem, and we're going to send you to a counselor to line your mind up with your body. But now, if someone were to go into a doctor and say, I am a woman stuck in a man's body, the doctor is just as likely to agree, yes, this is a problem, but he's more likely to say, we're going to send you to a surgeon to align your body with your mind. And that is a seismic shift. That is a radical shift. And it's happened in just a few generations, the consummation of that thing, it locked in. But really, the, the seeds of this revolution go back literally hundreds of years. And so we're looking at that because it's important for you and I, if we're going to help people, if we're going to stand for biblical truth, but also help people in their dilemma, then we need to understand where they're coming from. And we need to connect the dots so that we understand when people say things. And uh, the reason Carl Truman called his book Strange New World, and I thought it was a great title, is because this is a strange new world. And uh, it's like many a movie, many a science fiction movie, uh, is set in a setting where someone wakes up in a world they don't recognize. Up is down, left is right, and uh, they just don't recognize the world they live in. And many of us as Bible-believing Christians can feel that same way. And it's not just Bible-believing Christians, because it's those that we share something in common with, and that is a Judeo-Christian worldview. And so we're going to look at that. Now, last time we, we looked at this, we were looking at how... Jean-Jacques Rousseau, a, uh, a, a French philosopher from the 1700s, wrote a book called Confessions. And it was his polemic, his answer to Augustine, the, uh, the bishop of Hippo, one of the early church fathers, one of the primary shapers of Christian theology in the, the, early, church uh, in the early church history. Augustine had written a book called Confessions. And a lot of people look at Augustine's book, Confessions, as the first autobiography. It really gave you an internal view into the wrestlings of a man's soul. But Augustine was giving you a view into his struggle with sin and how he came to faith and how he struggled with his fallenness. And Augustine came from, or Augustine, however you say it, he came from a, a Christian worldview that said man is fallen. Man's problem is his nature, primarily his nature and secondarily his nurture. Rousseau, hundreds of years later, lifted his title and wrote an, a book himself called Confessions. And it was, and there's been a lot of writing about, you can get online and you can find documents uh, 
you know, comparing or contrasting what they said, but it really comes down to this. Rousseau didn't believe that man was fallen. Rousseau believed man in his natural state was the pristine man. And the problem was not nature, it was nurture. It was, the problem was not him, it was society's rules and society's morality and specifically the Judeo-Christian worldview and the laws of biblical Christianity. And he, he felt like, well, what had happened is man is corrupted by these external influences. And if we just step back and let man just run naked and unbridled, then the world will be nirvana. It will be paradise. He was a brilliant guy, but it just goes to show you, just because you're brilliant doesn't mean you don't say stupid things. And so it really comes down to two different worldviews. And we've talked about this many times, but we need to really let this hit home. Ideas have consequences. And no ideas have more drastic consequences than theological ideas. We've talked about this many times. The most important thing about you is what you believe about God. The second most important thing about you is what you believe about yourself. Or you could put it this way, your theology and your identity, and in a wider sense, your theology and your anthropology, your theology of humanity. How do you view mankind? And the Bible is very clear. Man is fallen. He's, he was created in the image of God. That image was marred and buried and needs to be redeemed. Man has fallen into sin and he, we have to contend with that. Furthermore, man has either redeemed or has the opportunity to do so through faith. And then Fourthly, we need to understand that that redemption is a process. And all of that has to do with this present conversation. Because Rousseau was the first of the romantics, and the whole idea was that man is defined by his feelings. Let me just read through this, because I can get through... I can be more concise if I read what I wrote. Rousseau accomplished redefining the self as the therapeutic self, rejecting the biblical worldview, uh, the biblical view of man as fallen. Rousseau replaced it with the view of man as corrupted, not by his nature, but rather by the nurture of society. In his philosophy, man was not guilty; society was. Salvation came about by freeing man from society's rules, but not from not. Uh, Salvation came about by freeing man from society's rules, from biblical moral codes. So the problem was all this imposition of all these rules, and if you just let man be himself, everybody would just get along. Yeah, I mean, history refutes that, but uh, don't let facts stand in the way of your, you know, your selfish conclusions. Uh, it was Freud who went on to redefine the ther So. We, we looked at Rousseau, and that's an important thing, and, and we need to understand that we've got to hold to a biblical worldview of mankind, that if you don't understand yourself as fallen, you will put too much credibility in your feelings. And what we need to understand is that belief 
of man's feelings being the authoritative witness, the authoritative standard by which he judges himself. If you judge yourself by what you feel, that is that lays the groundwork for this whole LGBT, gender confusion, gender fluidity uh, debate. That's, that is where this comes from. There's more to it. We're going to look at it this morning. But it is also where Marxism and leftist ideology flows from. Now we said this two weeks ago, how scripture says that wisdom is known by her children. Jesus said that. And what he was saying is that the real proof or validity of a, of a philosophy is revealed by the second generation. What is the fruit of the, in, the, in the lives of the children of that philosophy? So you may say something that sounds good in an ivory tower, uh, you know, in the, the sterilized classroom, it sounds real good, but the validity or the discrediting of that philosophy is really seen when it's lived out. And not just lived out in the short term, but generationally. And we can see how these, these two philosophies have created two different kinds of government, two different uh, worldviews, and the fruit of the one has been mass murder, Marxism, uh, totalitarianism, out of that view that man has not fallen, and I don't have time to make a case for that, but you can see, and we're going to get into Marxism in our next installment. We're going to look at this, and, and I said I'm going to, we're going to look at the political landscape in America, and how, how it sits in the party's views, and how the, 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 the political parties, the two-party system that we look at is not as simplistic as we would like to think. There are those without a Christian worldview on both sides of the aisle, and they're more in agreement with each other than with their parties. And we need to understand. So we're going to look at that. I, I said I'll show it next time. I'm recanting that. We'll show it the next time because it fits more with what we're going to be looking at. Because what really the outline of what we're looking at is this, that Rousseau redefines self, and the authority to define ourself is found within, not without. We're severed from all external uh, you know, external rules and input, and we just look into ourself to how do I feel? What do I feel I am? So that was what Rousseau succeeded in doing. To this morning, we're going to look at Sigmund Freud, who took that redefined self and sexualized it. Sex became the primary fixture. The sexuality of man became the primary fixture of man's identity. Man was thoroughly sexualized. Everything was read through the lens of... Freud was really... No any other way to say it. He was a pervert. Everything was sexual to Freud. Now we need to understand this. Because we, we begin to get into science when we begin to touch on Freud. And we need to understand that in the new world, in this new world, when we sever ourselves from external input, when the authority resides within us, then a, this new religion has to bring forth a new priesthood. The old priesthood was the theologian who derived his authority from the scripture. The new priesthood is the therapist who looks not without as at an objective standard, but within in the subjective, always fluid feelings of man. But he does it under the cover of 
the respectability of science, the, the dispassionate objectivity. I'm just looking at the facts. I have a lab coat on. I don't have any preconceived ideas. And what we need to realize is that is never the case with theologian or therapists, with preachers or scientists. We all come to the table with our preconceived ideas. So, if, if we were to develop this, we need to realize it goes this way. Your worldview comes out of your theology. Out of your theology comes philosophy. And out of your philosophy comes how you approach science. So any scientist and any theologian, by the way, comes to the table of debate with presuppositions, which means they've already have some previously held conclusions that they come to the table with. This is what I believe. And so when they're looking at the facts, it's through the lens of what they already believe. And so scientists that don't have a biblical worldview can look at facts, but they're not open to the possibility of God being involved because they've already settled that. There is no God. So it's not a dispassionate, objective observation. It is, they have a vested, they, they, have, there are, they already have conclusions they come to the table with. Does that make sense? And we need to understand that because often in our culture, the elevated authority we've granted to science and even the medical community needs to be put in check by the scriptures. Let God be true and every man a liar. And this is why we have to be rooted in the scriptures. We need to, we, as believers, we say, I don't trust myself. I don't trust my feelings. My feelings can lead me astray. I know that from the Bible, objectively, and I know that from experience, subjectively. <laughs> I've proven to myself I can lead myself astray. So I need something outside of myself, some unchangeable authority that I can point to and say, this is what is the standard of truth. And it judges me. I don't judge it. That is biblical Christianity. When we sever ourselves from that, when we cut the ties, we're left with this fluid world of our own feelings. And we look to people to help us, not to help us find out what the, the, the problem is inside, we point outside, and, and we don't have time to get into this other than to say, you can see this in political ideologies. There is one political party that tends to say, don't blame the individual, blame society. That is Rousseauian philosophy. Ronald Reagan was famous for saying something to the effect of, we need to stop, every time we find someone breaking the law, we need to stop blaming society for it. What he was doing, whether he knew it or not, he was confronting Rousseauian philosophy. William Sowell, a brilliant black economist and political commentator, you need to read William Sowell. He is amazing. He's a brilliant man. And I read something he said the other day. He said, I didn't say it the other day, I read it the other day. He said that we're nearing the place where nobody is guilty for what they have done, but everybody is guilty for what they haven't done. We're all guilty for what the individual does, but the individual is never guilty for what he does. And see, that, 
that society breaks down under that. You can't, that's where we get into this virtue signaling that, oh yes, I'm with, you know, I'm, I'm standing against society. Hey, you are society. And it's that whole thing of nurture versus nature. The bi biblical Christianity says man's primary problem is his fallen nature. I have to confront me. I can't blame you. I confront me for my problems. Humanism says I'm pristine in my natural state. Everyone else is the problem. Society is, it's the, the nurture that I receive. My mom put my diapers on backwards and it made me want to be an alcoholic or whatever, fill in the blanks. And, and I say that tongue in cheek, that doesn't negate the fact that we are affected by things, but that is the secondary cause. That the real problem is not what was done to me, but how I responded to what was done to me. And I need to own that if I'm to be free. And I'm talking, as, I, I have a little bit of authority, and not that I'm the only one in the room, but I was a mess. And I had to go into a lot of counseling. I was a, when I was a young, homeless alcoholic, I had a lot of screwed up views. And God had to take me through some things. And when I went to the secular rehabs and all these, these, uh, you know, these opportunities they gave me, what I walked out with, I, I remember as a young teenager, and I told my dad, who was a pastor, I said, Dad, you know what they told me? They said the reason I drink is because of your strong, strict rules in this home. And it's really, it's really the way you raised me. And I have a disease, but you, it was provoked by your strictness and your, you know, your unreasonable. I remember my probation officer telling my dad, he's a teenager, just let him drink. And my dad pounded the table, no! The probation officer got up from the kitchen table, slammed the door, peeled out of the driveway. He was so mad. Years later, he apologized to my dad and said, Reverend Olson, you were right. But you see these two ideologies and how they manifest themselves politically. See, one ideology says society is always at fault and the individual is the victim. The other ideology says and again, we're going to look at this in the coming weeks. It's not so much along political lines as ideological lines, okay? The other ideology says the individual is the problem and we need to protect the corporate from the individual. And so let's, let's read on here. Okay. Salvation came... And under Rousseauian theology, philosophy, salvation came by freeing man from society's rules, from the biblical moral code. Man's identity became severed from theology and all other externals, and now would find its meaning in one's own feelings. This all crea also created a new priesthood, the priesthood of the theologian, who derived his authority from scripture, was now replaced by the therapist, who derived their authority from science and the feelings of the patient. But then along came Freud. It was Freud who went on to redefine the therapeutic self of Freud, I mean of Rousseau rather, in terms of the sexual. Freud was vehemently anti-Christian. Like Rousseau, Freud viewed, man's authentic, viewed man, the authentic man, in his original state before being encumbered by societal sexual mores. Unlike Rousseau, however, Freud saw the necessity of sexual limits for society function. This was because Freud's view of man which was much darker than Rousseau's. Rousseau was an optimist. He was an idealist. 
Freud looked inside the human soul and what he believed made him shudder. He didn't share the optimism of Rousseau. Inner man was an extremely dark place driven by unconscious sexual urges that had to be bridled if man were to coexist with others. Under Freud, man was inevitably and continually frustrated. Although many of his views were neither new nor did they pass the test of time, what Freud did accomplish was to present the Marquis de Sade's perverted view of man in scientific and therefore respectable terms. Because he couched them in scientific terms, stated them as this, though there were dispassionate observations, they had much more traction. Although his therapeutic theories have largely been debunked, he did succeed in redefining man as thoroughly sexual, establishing the sexualization of man. Man has come to be viewed through his sexuality, his sexuality being the primary component of his identity. Or to put it another way, through Freud, man's sexuality became not only the most defining characteristic of his identity, it was his identity. Does that sound familiar? Man was a purely sexual being reduced to his basest instinct. Everything about him was, was defined and explained through the lens of sexual desire. This is what is behind the drive to immediately identify one's sexuality, which is such a strange thing to most of us. Hi, I'm Dave. I'm heterosexual. You're like, too much information, you know? <laughs> Didn't need to know that. But there's a, re there's a logic behind why People are driven to do that in this day and age. What is that? While the Christian and those holding to a Christian worldview would ask the very logical question, why does a kindergarten teacher feel the need to share about their sexuality with their five-year-old students? They would answer that it's necessary to do so in order to be their authentic self. Because self is defined by feelings and it's primarily a sexual self. Western Anthropology has become saturated in its sexual identity. Everything has become sexual. And if you read Freud, and I wouldn't recommend you do so without getting prayed for and taking a bath. I mean, he looked at, even, he, he looked at little infant children as sexual. He believed they were driven by sexual drive. The guy was a pervert. And you think he was bad, wait till you hear about Alfred Kinsey, who took it a step further. To them, identity is sexual and they have an obligation to themselves to be their authentic selves. Furthermore, if, as Freud taught them, everything is sexual and everyone, including children, are sexually driven, then they must prepare their students by discussing this, the most prominent of human characteristics about this facet of life. To fail to do so is to, fulfill, is to fail to prepare their students for reality. We cannot elaborate on this today, but we will in our next installment on Marxism. But the final philosophical building block which explains their radical behavior is found in the Marxist views which seek to overthrow parental rights and destroy the nuclear family structure. Within this view, the state owns the children as opposed to the parents. And there is a logic to all of this that we need to understand. It's not good logic. But it's not irrational, it's built on a faulty rationale. And if we understand it, we can, number one, engage with those who have been taken captive, but even perhaps more importantly, we can recognize the areas where we have become complicit. 
where we have bought into this worldviews, this worldview ourselves. Although many, uh, uh, here, this therapeutic view which has now been sexualized, which views its sexuality as the primary component of its identity, now feels the need to lead with that. In fact, an unwillingness to do so makes one inauthentic, violating one of the primary edicts of the new social code. You've got to be authentic. You've got to be the true you. This, is, this of course, see the old world view was those parts of you that that's true, put a lid on it. Let's, let's get some counseling. Let's get discipled. Let's deal with that manifestation of your fallenness. Whereas in the new view, no, that's, that's the authentic you and let it, let it rip. <laughs> and so this, of course, redefines oppression. And this is where Marxism comes in. It is no longer primarily economic oppression, it has become psychological oppression. This is the logic behind so-called hate speech, safe places, and intolerance and censorship by the new left. Now, the fact is, when it's applied to true racism, yes, those are valid points. But the, 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 the uh, civil rights movement of the 60s has been hijacked for the new sexual morality of the 2000s. That's why when Black Lives Matter first came onto the scene following the tragic death of, of uh, Floyd, what happened was it, right away on their front page, you, you saw their platform. It was things like, we are for the overthrow of the nuclear family, the, the eradication of the, the fatherhood, the paternal uh, hierarchy. We don't need dads. We don't need men. Uh, you know, it was for the sexualization of children. And people were scratching their head and thinking, what does this have to do with black lives mattering? And then they would, then, then they get interviewed by the, the founders are interviewed and they'd say, yeah, we're trained Marxists and community activists. And what they were saying was that really this was a Marxist agenda. And what we need to understand, there's, there's these strange bedfellows who have been put together, and that is Freudian sexuality and Marxist redefining oppression, not as economic oppression, but as sexual and psychological oppression. And that's why under the guise of Black Lives Matter, who can argue with that statement? Who wants to get up and say, I'm against that? Nobody. And it was a brilliant strategy. But if you look at their platform, it was not about black lives mattering. It was about the overthrow of the patriarch and the biblical worldview and the sexualization even of children. And now we're seeing, you've, some of you have seen it on social media over the last few days, children being taught to pole dance by almost near, completely naked women. I, this picture popped up on my Facebook feed. I needed to get a cleansing after seeing it. But little kids being taken to strip clubs. What is, what is that? It is the sexualization of children and their goal is to overthrow the family. And what we need to understand is this. This is a demonic worldview that cannot, it, it not only cannot tolerate Christianity, it cannot tolerate the nuclear family. It cannot tolerate God's view of a father and mother raising their children. Marx himself understood 
that the family was the number one enemy of the state because it was the one way that children could be taught other values. And this isn't about political parties. But the fact is, the left has hijacked many people's minds. And there's one party that's holding the line on, on left, leftist ideology. And there are people on the right side of the aisle that, truth be told, are very leftist in their ideology too. They're just more conservative in their fiscal policy. But their social policy is just as leftist as the other. And so what we're seeing is the extreme ends are merging into one and the middle is becoming another part. And we're seeing this thing tearing apart. And so we need to understand the, this ideology, how, how dangerous it is. Okay. What happened with... Uh, In the, I want to say it was the 1920s. How many of you are familiar with Alfred Kinsey? Alfred Kinsey was a sexologist. Uh, he was a scientist. And he wrote a book in, I think it was 48, and another book in 52. The first one was the sexual, the, the sexual Behavior of the Human Male. And the second, that was the first book. The second book was The Sexual Behavior of the Human Female. And what he did is he... Uh, claimed to have studied this wide test group of thousands of people, and he wrote his conclusions, just looking at the facts. And he rolled out his conclusions, and, he, and, and these, these books had a radical impact. It was like a bomb went off. Matter of fact, Hugh Hefner, the founder of Playboy, pointed at Alfred Kinsey and said, because of what he's saying, I feel the liberty, even the obligation to publish my magazines because we're all hypocrites. We're all doing this stuff anyway. So he, he claimed that 50% of men were cheating on their wives. 80% of men had slept with a prostitute. That a good share of, of people had participated in bestiality. He also talked about how children were very sexual, and he talked, they had studies on how many orgasms infants had an hour. Now you need to ask yourself, how did he know that? What he actually did is he hired people to, with a stopwatch to watch children being sexually abused. Hundreds of children. Here's the problem. Kinsey was a closet pervert himself, that was making pornographic videos in his attic. He, there, there was just all kinds of garbage. I, you, I wouldn't even suggest you read his stuff. But here's the problem. He lied about who his test group was. In reality, let me, let me read this here. In reality, what, what he did, uh, here, I'll find it. Okay. Kinsey's skewed research is a case study in how a culture's social imaginary, it's, it's a, uh, or their worldview, how they imagine the world around them to be, is reshaped. 
he deceptively derived his research of societal sexual norms from the perverted fringe of society. His case study was really among the incarcerated prostitutes and pedophiles. He studied them, published his conclusions as if this was the normal middle section of society. What happened with that was, and by withholding the knowledge of who the test group was, moved the fringe sexual mores to the center in the public mind. The average citizen was marginalized as sexually prudish. Their sexual practices, rightly kept private until that area, I don't need to know about them, became a source of shame and self-doubt while the perverted was validated by the deceptive data. This opened the floodgates to perversion and the devastating consequences these open doors produced in society, family, and family lines. And you and I know, being spiritually aware, that that became an avenue through which the demonic flooded our society. And we have generations of people who are tormented sexually with all kinds of garbage in their mind because we swung the doors open. One of the primary shapers of the social imaginary or uh, our perception of how, light, how society really works, uh, one of the primary shapers of the social imaginary is the scientific world, medical and psychological. This grants legitimacy to arguments born of faulty worldviews and their company values. Consumed by the elites, the faulty conclusions are then passed on to the ma masses through numerous forms as fact. The arts and entertainment are some, if not the primary, drivers of this information. We have a culture that has been raised on watching sitcoms that present that stuff as normal. Communicated in this way, the ideas are even more seductive, both emotionally moving and disconnected from their real-world real world consequences. Over time, this shapes the societal idea of what is normal. These conclusions then give rise to personal struggles in the individual, and on the other hand, on the one hand, and the attempt to address these struggles by leaders on the other. This serves to drive the public discourse, further shaping what becomes considered normal by the culture. Does that make sense? It even shapes the pulpit, especially when we have this idea of the church as addressing felt needs. Let me just step into something just for a second here. I remember hearing Mike Bickle say this a number of years ago. I went to a pastor's conference over at IHOP and I was asking the Lord about the seeker-sensitive movement. I had recently become the pastor here and I, I could see some wisdom in the seeker-sensitive movement. I was asking the Lord about it and Mike at that conference said something that I knew was a word from the Lord for me and this is what he said. Seeker-sensitivity is brilliant as a communication, as a communication method but it's deadly as a culture. He was speaking prophetically. Because when we look at the church, when I look at you and I say, okay, I'm going to be driven by a seeker-sensitive ideology, then what I need to do is I need to allow you to tell me what you're struggling with, and then I'm going to look for, through the Bible to give you a relevant answer to your self-diagnosis. The problem is the Bible diagnoses us as well as cures our disease. And if we don't allow the Bible to diagnose us, if we allow people's felt needs to determine what we're going to preach on, we're not really addressing, often we're really not addressing the real problem. 
you can put it this way, using that, that, that analogy of diagnosis and medication and all that, preachers are not called to be drug dealers that say, tell me what you want and I'll give you some. I want to make you feel good. Tell me what you're itching for and I'll give you some. We're called to be physicians and this is for all of us, not just for the pastor. This is for all of us. I am a doctor and I am not only to give you, I'm not to give you what you think you need, I'm to tell you from the scriptures this is what you need and I need to convince you of that so then I can give you the medication that will really help you. But if we're just, so this whole thing of felt needs, what happens is when a culture buys into this, people begin to have self-doubt. Well, I guess I'm abnormal. I thought I was supposed to just have desire for my wife and not go off with prostitutes and, you know, deal with same-sex attractions and uh, I guess, you know, and, and all of this is just normal and everybody's doing it and it causes self-doubt to the point where now in our culture, for, remember, there was a movie that, I've never seen it, but it, it was out a few years ago called The 40-Year-Old Virgin. And it was a joke. Someone who's 40 years old and virgin? Surely if you're a virgin at 40 years old, you wouldn't admit it. Because morality and purity has become something to be ashamed of in our culture. We're repressed and we're, we're, we're like immature and haven't really developed. We can't live a satisfied life because man is thoroughly sexual. And the ultimate, the ultimate for man to be fulfilled is to be sexually fulfilled and if you're not experimenting, then you're a weirdo. And that's what's happened in our culture. And if we're not careful, what happens is we respond to felt needs and just address things on the surface rather than going deep into theology and knowing the word and saying, listen, your deliverance is here. Let me, let me close with this. I had someone come and talk to me. They had a dear friend, two dear friends, one had been someone that had mentored them. Person who had operated in tremendous signs and wonders was powerfully used of the Lord. And recently this person came out of the closet as a practicing homosexual. And this individual said, hey, I, I asked God to deliver me and he didn't. I still have the desires. And so one of their other friends that they, they would go out and do ministry and see signs and wonders and have encounters with God. And, and it was an amazing thing. And now they're watching from afar as these two friends, one was a mentor and one was a peer. And they both have bought into this ideology. And the peer said to them, well, do you know that Study after study has been done and it, nobody has ever been delivered of same-sex desire. There's two problems with that statement. Number one, it's not true. I have friends who were deep in, they were fully identified in the homosexual lifestyle that now are enjoying their grandbabies after decades of uh, being, yeah. Jesus can change lives. But there's a deeper problem with that because the insinuation of that charge is, well, if I ask God to change me and he doesn't, then he must have created me this way. And God would never call me to live unfulfilled in an area of my life. I have the right to fulfill my desires because my authentic self is the desire, my feelings inside. And if God doesn't change my feelings, he must be endorsing them.
And this is the problem of a watered-down Christianity that has no theology of suffering. We don't apply that to any other area. You know what? I'll tell you, I, I have been sober 39 years in a month. 39 years. But you know what? I could still like getting drunk. Seriously, I, I just liked how it felt. I just love Jesus too much to let myself go there. I'm not going back there. But it wasn't that, oh, I hated the feeling. I, I teased my daughter. My daughter has been on heavy medication because of all her health issues. And dad, I don't like how they make me feel. I'll tease you. You ain't my daughter. I said, man, you know, good thing you're not like your dad. And we laugh, you know. A few years ago, I had, I had a terrible earache. I went to the doctor. He put a scope in my ear and he said, oh my goodness, the whole inside of your head's rotted out. He said, you're in bad shape. He gave me some oxycodone. It was a Sunday evening. Everybody was going to bed. My ear was throbbing. I said, Kath, I'm just going to take some of this medicine and spend some time with the Lord. All of heaven came down. He really did. I had a great time with the Lord. I was weeping. I think I was dancing in the living room. I mean, it was glorious. Jesus ministered to my heart. The next night... My ear's still hurting. Kathy's heading out to bed. I said, "Hun, i I'm just going to, my ear's still, I'm going to take one of those pills and I'm going to spend some time with the Lord. And all of a sudden, my, I had a check in my spirit and I realized, oh my goodness, that's how easy it happens. I went to bed with an earache and didn't take any medication. I just know myself. You say, well, God wouldn't want you to suffer. Well, he'd, he'd rather, he's more concerned with my character than my comfort. And if I have to embrace suffering to stay free, so be it. Now, we say that, that's, that's a much easier thing to do with physical pain. When, I'm telling you, when people struggle with same-sex desire, it's no small thing. It's no small thing. It's heart-wrenching. Can you imagine that that's your attraction? But yet you're saying, Jesus, I want to I serve you. But Lord... I'm lonely and I want to have a relationship. I want to have a sexual relationship. I want to be married, but I'm not attracted to my, uh, the opposite sex. I'm attracted to the same sex. We don't have time to get into it this morning, but I'm telling you, people don't wake up one day and choose that. It's based in woundedness. It's based in deprivation from childhood, wires get crossed, and sincere believers can struggle with that. And I will even go as far as saying when they have that, the desire is not sin. It's the satisfaction of that desire in a sinful way. And actually, they can offer that desire up to the Lord as an offering and say, God, I don't understand why I'm still struggling like this. And Lord, I'm hoping you will heal me. But if you never do, I'm going to serve you according to your word. And I will deny myself the luxury of a sexual relationship as an offering to you. And that is a noble thing. It's a godly thing. And it's the Christian thing. And that's how we have to operate in every area. If the Bible says something, regardless of how I feel, I line myself up with the word. And here's the amazing thing. If a person, regardless of what it is, for me it was alcoholism. If I would have said, God, I tell you what, I'm going to give you a year. And if I, if I still have a desire on Friday nights to go out and get hammered, then I'm just going to 
assume that you made me this way and you're okay with it. I would be a drunk to this day. I remember telling the Lord, I said, God, I'm so grateful to be saved, but I'm gonna be a mute till I get to heaven because I can't function. I was so socially awkward without alcohol. And I said, Lord, I'm just gonna be a mute, but I had to embrace that. And I would, I would have such anxiety attacks in, in social settings. I would sit there, and inside, people look at me and I'm just sitting there. Inside, I'm screaming. I'm feeling like I gotta crawl out of my skin. I wanted to run out of the room, which would have freaked everybody out. But that's what was going on inside of me. My hands would shake, I would sweat. If they'd ask me a question, my voice would break. I couldn't talk. But I had to say, you know what? If that's the way I live the rest of my life, so be it, but I'm gonna serve Jesus. What I didn't understand was that was actually the pathway to freedom. And if we never come to that, we'll never know freedom. Let me close with this, and I'm sorry for going over. Let me close with one verse. First Peter chapter four. He says, Christ suffered in his body. Arm yourselves also with this same attitude because he who suffers in his body is done with sin. What is Peter saying? He said this, Christ suffered. He had an, and then it says, arm yourself with the same attitude. Jesus had an attitude towards suffering. He embraced it. He didn't run from it. He had an attitude, and, he, and Peter says, if you have that attitude, it becomes an armor of defense against temptation. Arm yourself also with the same attitude. And then he says this astounding thing, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. What he's saying is this, sin is always flight from pain. Every time. At some level, you're freeing from some area of discomfort and pain in your life. And God has called us to pick up our cross and say, I'm gonna live with this pain, and I wanna believe with you. Listen, if you're struggling, my heart breaks for you. I don't say that lightly. And I, I'm believing for your deliverance. But until then, remain faithful to Jesus, and embrace the pain, and actually offer it to him as a, a sweet-smelling savor to him. And what you'll find is that often that is the avenue through which healing begins. But the threshold is this commitment. If I live the rest of my days with this unfulfilled desire, having something I don't want, or not having something I do want, I'm gonna embrace it in the will of God and I'm gonna serve you, Jesus. And that's what will bring healing. And if he never does, I believe there's a crown for those who embrace that desire. Let's go ahead and stand. Let's pray. Jesus, Lord, I'm asking God that you would break our heart for the LGBT community. Lord, break our hearts. Lord, teach us to love the individual. Teach us to live within the tension of loving the person well while not endorsing the ideology. God, teach us to earn a hearing with those that are struggling. And Jesus, we're asking 
Lord, that you would release a wave of your power and authority in this hour. Lord, for deliverance. Lord, we're asking for a harvest among the LGBT community. Lord, we're asking that in this hour you'd begin to raise up some of the greatest apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers from that community. God, that you would deliver them. Lord, that you would raise up a mighty army. And Father, help us to play our part. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.